I said, I'm Mike, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm Mike. I'm glad to be uh, called today to do this. Uh, I always feel like it's an honor or privilege when they ask me to be a guest speaker somewhere. I never say no. And the biggest reason is because I like to talk. If any of you know me from meetings, you know that because you hear me saying stuff all the time. And sometimes it gets me in trouble. Other times it doesn't. So I just got to keep coming back. But anyway, I'm just real grateful to be here for this. And I'll give you a little bit of uh, what it was like, what it's like now and all that stuff. So, First off, I I grew up in uh, Des Moines, Iowa. That's where I was raised, and that's where I grew up. And uh, there wasn't much to do back there in in good old Des Moines, Iowa, but sit and uh, listen to the corn grow out in the distance. There just ain't a whole heck of a lot of things going on in Iowa. And I had this argument for years, even with my wife, that I was considered a big city boy because I was raised in Des Moines. That's the capital city of Iowa. And everybody keeps telling me, no, that's just a small town. Damn it, no, it's it's a city. (laughs) So I was a city boy. You know, but anyway, that's where I grew up. And... uh, then we moved, then I moved up to Clinton, Iowa. But my childhood, I don't know, I sit back and I look over today and uh, I look at it a lot differently. Um, there's only a small period of time there when there's any kind of real abuse that went on in our house and then that stopped. Uh, but it was enough to screw me up. Uh, it wasn't done by my folks or anybody else. We had some older kids that created the problem. And, uh, and the situation just was not good. And uh, that did, it, it jacked my thinking up later on in life. But that didn't make me drink, you know, the alcohol. What made me drink the alcohol was my older brother. He had a phony ID and a bunch of his buddies went and bought a bunch of booze and brought it to the house. And uh, they let me have some of it. And I got drunker in hell. You know, it's not like somebody uh, held me down and poured it down my throat or anything. It's just it was there, and I was able to do it. It's one of those things that I wanted to feel like I was part of, because I never felt like I was part of anything. And that's part of, uh, of the abuse that went on. I never felt accepted or never felt like I belonged or was very much loved at that time. But that didn't matter. Because I always know, I just know this. When I sit back and I look at my drinking back then, when I started, is right off the bat, as soon as I as soon as I started drinking that day, I didn't stop. I kept on drinking one beer after another. I kept on, and, and malt liquor was a thing back then too. And, and one malt liquor after another, and it, it just continued that way all afternoon before my folks came home. And the end result was throwing up. Passing out, eventually passing out. But every time I drank, it was like that. Every time. You know, I don't know what it's like to really go out and enjoy myself drinking. I have no concept of it, no idea of it, or how it's really done. I've tried it, but I've never been able to do it because it's just like that very first day. Every time I tried to do that, I would drink, get drunk, puke, pass out, or something like that. You know, what happened? Through the process of all this drinking, I didn't know what it was like to be in a relationship. I was married. I got married very young. I got married when I was about 19. I met my high school sweetheart, 
I married her when she graduated because she was a year behind me. And, uh, you know, that marriage didn't end very well. Let's put it that way. It didn't last long. Uh, and it all due again to alcohol. But this time she drank and I drank. So that just, that's where, that's why that ended the way it did. You know, there's a lot of things I was told about all that along the way, too. You know, she met some other person and, and she left and her parents were alcoholic and all that stuff. See, I actually should have went to Elanon back then because I didn't. I wasn't drinking all that much at the time, and uh, she did. But anyway, I was living up in Clinton, Iowa, and uh, by then, and married to her, I had a real good job up there, and I threw that away too. So I'm kind of bouncing around a lot because um, uh, I had a cortisone shot about two weeks ago, and I'm still kind of fuzzy from the effects of that. So I'll be jumping around a little bit. I don't mean to be right now. And some of the side effects of it, which I didn't think I was going to have, I ended up having. So bear with me. But anyway, I'll get back into it. Anyway, uh, like I said, when I was living there in, in Des Moines, and that's where I started my drinking, was every time I drank, I did get drunk. And like I said, that first marriage ended very, very poorly, very sadly. And then... Uh, I stayed single there for a while, and I was living up in Clinton, Iowa by then. And, and I was working in a place at Clinton Corn, Clinton, Iowa. I was making good money. I was working as an electrician. Prior to working there, I was working out of uh, Illinois, and I was working um, out of there as an electrician, but I was working union, and I was married to someone else when that was all going on. And then, uh, anyway, I ended up there at Clinton Corn because of the economy. Uh, we were into another recession because that would have been back in about the late 70s, early 80s. And there just weren't a whole hell of a lot of jobs then. So I ended up doing things that I did not believe in. Because at that time, I worked, uh, I was most of the jobs I had. I was a union steward in one of them. Uh, and then I belonged to the IBEW and another one. And then I went from there and crossed a picket line there in Clinton, Iowa at the time, because there was a strike going on. But the money was too good, and there weren't very many jobs, and I needed a job. And I went to work there. During that time, it was a very violent period in that town, very violent. They had to call the National Guard out to that uh, uh, to, to Clinton Court a few times just to, to get everything calmed down from the strikers and workers and stuff. In fact, we lined up the whole perimeter of the factory or uh, premises uh, with uh, pipes and stuff like that back then. And anyway, that all kind of cooled off after a while, and then I went ahead and got drunk and left that job. And that's what happened there. Now, when I worked there at Clinton Corn, though, I, I did make alcohol there. I was in charge of Here I am, an alcoholic, and they, they, put me, they put me in charge of all the electrical one of the divisions I had was the alcohol division. So here I am <laughs> making Fletcherman's gin, and they also made uh, alcohol there in that plant for your vehicles and stuff, you know. I'm taking care of all the equipment to keep that running. And I remember coming into work many times, hung over from the night before, or half drunk from the night before, walking into that building and just walking out half drunk again. I didn't have to drink anything. It was just the smell. It was just the fumes. 
I mean, because you'd be so, so sick anyway. And uh, it was just crazy. Man, uh, I remember, I remember all that. Then um, I took a job down, and uh, I quit that job. Went out, and got drunk, quit that job. I was feared for my life by then because I just left someone. As I had an affair with somebody else, and anyway, I, that marriage ended. It was the one that brought me actually sobriety. I was involved into my second marriage. And I went out and had an affair with this other gal. The guilt and shame from that was so much for me, I could hardly bear it. And there wasn't enough alcohol to bury it. I was that born to my drinking by then. And the shame and disgust and, and, and incomprehensible demoralization from that behavior that I exhibited and did made it very hard for me to, you know, just to go on and keep on. I, I, that's probably one of the worst things I could have ever done to someone in my life was that and the way I, I handled that. And I totally destroyed someone emotionally. And I just, I don't ever want to do that again. And anyway, I ended up getting involved with that other gal, married her. We had a son. With all that shame and guilt, here I'm married to her now, <laughs> you know. I'm drinking every day, every day. Quit the job over there, Clinton Corner. Moved to Davenport, Iowa. Took his other job over Rock Island, Illinois. And at that job, because of my drinking and everything else, I didn't know there was problems going on over there between uh, the union and uh, people that were working there that wanted my job. And they made my life a living hell working there because they wanted me to quit so this guy could get the job. And they didn't have to go about it that way. And also, you knew what they had to do is approach me and tell me that I could have left and collected unemployment from Illinois and that uh, I could have bowed out that way and done all that. And, that guy could have gotten my job, and that would have been okay. But they didn't do that. Nobody told me that. And we were still in a recession, you know. Hell, that area I lived in, you know, a lot of people don't understand this. That area I lived in had the highest un unemployment rate in the country at the time, right there in the greater Quad City area. You just, you know, they had the tractor plants closing down. They had the railroad going out. That John Deere and... Caterpillar Works and all that stuff, moved all their machinery works over to Europe and stuff. And and we were sitting there with about 13% on one side of the river or 23% on the other. And that's the Mississippi River there. Don't know. They were unemployed and out of work. And um, you know what? I still figured out a way to get drunk. I still figured out a way to get my booze. I ran into a couple people, somehow or another, they felt sorry for me because I knew how to get them to do that. And they told me, just put it on my tab. <laughs> so here's an alcoholic, they told that whatever you want to drink and have it, just put it on my tab. And they're telling, telling an alcoholic to do that. That's crazy. You know, and I said, hell, no problem. And now by then, I'm having people walking up to me and telling me, you drink like an alcoholic. And I'm in these damn bars. They're actually coming up telling me that. We think you're alcoholic. And, uh, you know, they were right. <laughs> you know, I was alcoholic. But I thought they were drunk. They were drunker sometimes than I was. So, anyway, I just kept on doing this stuff. And then one day, I was coming home and uh, from uh, being over there in uh, Rock Island, Illinois. 
And there's a bar over there. I was having nickel beer night, and I, I got off work around 11. And I was coming home from it, and it was daylight. And I got across the bridge between uh, Moline and, and, and Downport there, going across the Mississippi River, and uh, it dawned on me. This stuff had to stop. And I was back on March 28th of 1984. And I've not had to take a drink since that day. You know? Uh, that was the first day I went to a meeting. And my neighbor took me to the meeting. And my, I sent my wife over to my neighbor because I'm such a brave guy. You know? So then I sent her over to get him. And uh, he came over and talked to me, and he took me to my first AA meeting, which was at the Marquette Group. That's what it was called. And the Marquette Group was in this old schoolhouse. And in this schoolhouse up there in the auditoriums where we held our meetings, and it was in the afternoon, and he took me to that afternoon meeting. And the gentleman that took me to my very first AA meeting, he had 30 days of sobriety, but you know what? He knew where there was a meeting, and I thought that was brilliant. Wow, at least he knew where there was a meeting. And he took me to it. He took me more than just one of them. But it was great, you know. But I started going over there, and within about two weeks, uh, after an afternoon meeting, they cornered me, okay, took me off to the side. And they talked to me, and they said, you know, Mike, looking at you and, and, and the way you look right now, you need to go to the hospital. You probably don't, you know, we, we want to see you get locked up for 30 days. You need it. You need it. You need treatment right now. You need it just for your physical well-being of nothing else. You know, maybe this will give you a jump start and get more of the cobwebs cleaned out. And it's like, Okay. And I went over to the hospital, Mercy Hospital, there in Danport, Iowa. And I went up to the unit, which is on the third floor. And on the third floor is where they had the psych unit. I went in there, and I sat down, and I passed their test for alcoholism. They gave me this test. I usually don't do very good on tests, but that one I passed. <laughs> okay. So they decided to let me come in. But before I could go in, I had to spend the night in uh, what they call a lockup. So I had to make sure I'd be okay when I was detoxing and stuff and not get violent and all that good stuff. So I got to spend the night there on the psych, psych ward. They released me the next day. Uh, I don't know why. Maybe I behaved myself once. I don't know. But anyway, they took me down to treatment. It was all on St. Floors, just down the hallway, and uh, put me in a, what they called the, the, the Mark unit. And the main, first meeting they took me to was the Marquette group. It was named after that unit. And uh, spent 30 days there. And did blood work on me. I was not allowed to sleep with my door closed. I had to leave my door open. They rearranged people enough to where I could have a room across from the nurse's station so they could keep an eye on me all night. And I, had, and I did that for two weeks before they felt safe enough and secure enough for me to have my own room 
and to where I could shut the door. I was on suicide watch. And that's just how bad I was, not knowing it. They put me on a real high protein diet because I was down to 110 pounds. And I didn't even think I was that sick. I was the only one on the unit that was allowed to get up any time of the night, any time in the afternoon. If I ever wanted something to eat, I could go get it. Nobody else was allowed to do that because I needed to put on weight really bad. They gave me all kinds of different vitamins and all this stuff. Then they thought maybe I may have had leukemia there for a while because my blood work was so screwed up and the booze and, and the abuse I was putting to my body from all that. They really did. They thought maybe I had cancer or leukemia. And all of a sudden, about three weeks into all this stuff, my blood count came back around to normal. And things like my thinking was still screwed up. The only thing that came out normal was my blood work, <laughs> and it's still that way today, <laughs> you know. But anyway, it's just that's just what I remember from all that. And I don't ever want to forget that, though. I don't want to ever forget any of that stuff. I don't want to forget the nightmares I had while I was in treatment. I had a hell of a time sleeping because when I would close my eyes at night, the walls would all start talking to me. I would have these faces on the walls just screaming. And I couldn't close my eyes because it was so scary. And uh, it just really, I was really a mess. You know, and then uh, I came out of treatment, went back to my means right away. During the time I was in treatment, I did work the steps. They did take us through, even though I didn't know what the hell I was doing with them or whatnot, they immediately took me through the steps. Okay, the best we could, the best our abilities, that's what they had us do. And I had a sponsor by then because I already like I said I'd already been going to meetings I met this dude and I, I asked to sponsor me he would come up every week to see how I was doing at least twice a week he would come up to the unit to see how I was doing and he'd ask me what step did they have me working today and we would go over it together plus what we were doing in the group with that step okay I remember doing my third step at that time with a minister he came around and did third steps with everybody uh, at on that particular day that wanted to do a third step. And then he'd come back the next day and we would sit down and do a fifth. You know, and all this stuff. Well, make a long story short, and I'll go ahead and jump ahead on this. Later on, after being sober, I felt the need to do it again. I was about two years old. You never stop doing this stuff. You're going to find a need to go back to some of these things. And there's a reason why. I'll get to that here in a minute. But anyway, I got done. You know, I was, I was done with treatment and came back out and I went and returned back to the Marquette group. And I kept going to meetings and then I went into work. Promptly got fired from my job. Didn't have a job now, so I had a house payment coming up. I was already two months behind on it and I was just getting ready to get foreclosure notices on it. So I thought the best thing to do, because I've already been this far along with this, talked to my sponsor about it, says, Mike, you've already been this far just in treatment. Go ahead and make your amends. Go ahead, go talk to these people. So I went over to the bank and I talked to them about the house. I told them I don't think at this time I can make a house payment. So what they did was deferred my payments. Then I found out I had this insurance on the house because I was in the hospital, okay, that they were able to get me caught up because they had insurance. Plus they were able to put my house on the market and sell it for what I owed on it. To a bond, and we're still in this recession, 
in the household. So it left me free and clear. Now, I had a new car, too. I couldn't make the payments on it. They are getting ready to repo that. He says, well, go talk to them. So I went over there and talked to them. And they asked for the keys back. I had the keys, gave it to them. They took the car, auctioned it off for what I exactly owed on it, and paid it off. So it didn't affect my credit anyway. I couldn't afford it anyway. And I already had another car. So all it left us to do was find another place to live. And uh, during this time, too, this is just how it went, man. First 30 days were really hell in the first year. My first 30 days, when I got out of treatment, I was at work, and this is one of the reasons why I got fired, too, and, and, and stuff that got rid of me, is I had an accident at work. I slipped and fell and tore a disc out. Okay? So now I had this herniated disc at L, what they call L5. And it hurt. I mean, that painful, man. That's just, so I couldn't work, <laughs> you know. And I had, I had enough insurance to take care of all that injury and stuff. But they decided to, uh, after a while, and I got it all taken care of to let me go. And uh, anyway, it was crazy because I remember when I hurt myself, the ambulance came to take me to the hospital, and I go to the emergency room because I didn't know what I did to my low back, and it didn't work. And then it came at me with medications. It came at me with uh, pills. and I'm just getting out of goddamn treatment, you know, and I've had my head filled with all this stuff. And, and it's like, holy crap, I'm going to become an addict now. <laughs> they could come at me with all these pills. And they seemed so big. Everything was so exaggerated back then. You know, and I thought, oh, my God. Anyway, uh, I did what they asked me to do. And the reason why I had to do it is if I ever wanted to walk again, I had to get my back straightened back up. And I had to go and have this stuff done. So I had to take the medication to allow that to happen. So I did it. And uh, there you go. So here I am now. Um, but when you first over up and you're faced with all that stuff, it's like, wow. So, but anyway, I went through all this stuff, and then I went through another divorce even and I had a kid it was crazy that first year it's kind of hard for me to sit here even to this day and keep track of everything and how it went down because to me back then everything was so confusing and so messed up but the point of me even trying to tell the story like this with my drinking the way it was and with going through those things my first year of sobriety the things they told me was, once you get through all these things, Mike, it's going to make you stronger in your own sobriety. It's going to make you stronger towards your belief in a higher power you choose to call God. You take this stuff a day at a time, and you'll find out when you get to it where you sit. And you know, by God, they were right. And all they had to do is not pick up that first drink. You know? I mean, I'm not, I, that stuff I'm talking about, for me, was a lot of stuff. But I know there's been people that went through a hell of a lot worse and a hell of a lot more with that same philosophy. And they're still in these rooms today and they're still sober. Just don't pick up that first drink. Okay? Then after being sober for a while, now I'm single. I had to learn how to go back out here and, and date. You know what I mean? I was working at that time. I actually got a job so I could date. That's why I went out and got a job. I had an alternative motive to go to work because I was wanting a girlfriend. 
And uh, the only way I know how to find a girlfriend is to get a job. And then you can ask them, at least at McDonald's, for God's sake. You can't do that without any money. You know, so anyway, I went and found a job. And the only job that I had that lasted any time back then it was one I worked for Lark. I used to work for the old Lark down down behind the airport. I was called, it was known, excuse me, it was known as the, it was known as Lark or the local alcoholism reception center for Maricopa County. And I worked down there as a, what they would call a counselor aide. And I worked down there for about seven years. And that was back in about 1990, I'd say 90 to 95 maybe, or something like that, 96. And uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. My job consisted of uh, taking these guys and, and uh, driving them to their appointments, taking them to AA meetings, doing all that kind of stuff, helping them get set up in their rooms, uh, get them admitted. I worked intake when I was working down there, and I also worked uh, front desk. And uh, I got to see a lot of things that, that helped me in my own sobriety along the way. Uh, those guys, they became a lot uh, God, those people, I really enjoyed spending my time with them when they were sober. I really did. I, I, I grew to like them. They were homeless people, and they lived on the streets. I had to work long-term care down there for a while, and... Uh, they were neat people. I just, I love them to this day. And there's nothing better than to see that. You, you, you get a guy coming up, there's one guy I'll never forget. He, he was an older fella, been on the street for, I'd say at least 20, yeah, he's 20 years. Lived on the streets. And he had his old scruffy beard, you know. And one day he came up to my desk and he decided, I think I would like to shave my beard off. Now, anybody else was saying, what's the big deal about that? Well, it's a big deal here. He's asking to clean himself up a little bit more. He's, he's wanting to improve his looks. He's wanting to improve his well-being. You know, something that small may not be a big deal to some people, but this was a big deal. And I went on ahead and got everything he needed and uh, went out there and made sure he didn't kill, cut himself up and whatnot, you know, with the razors and stuff, in case he needed any help with the shaving and stuff went out there and he, he, he got all shaved and went ahead and got himself all cleaned up. And I went on ahead by then and returned to the front desk. And After he was all done, got himself all neatened up and everything, he came up front, came up to talk to me. And he said, I really appreciate you, you know, getting me all that stuff all rounded up. And he says, you know, I've been on these streets for so damn long, I didn't think anybody cared to love me anymore. And it's just that one act of kindness of getting out that razor and the shaving cream, you know, to show that, yeah, you know, there you go, was enough to make him realize today that son gave a damn. And I'll never forget that. And that's what it was like working down there. It, it, it was just told, uh, unrealistic to me, you know, I mean, it's hard to even explain. But you can also know when you're around uh, people like that, you can really feel the, the love and presence of a loving God. I mean, you really can and you'd be surprised how little it takes to make someone want to turn their life around. It could be just something that small. Be that small, just get somebody a damn bar of soap so they can bathe. You know, I mean, I've seen it, and uh, that's pretty cool. 
But anyway, that was probably one of the most uh, memorable places I ever worked. Also, one of the hardest places I ever worked at the same time. Because you've seen all the tragedy and everything can happen from this disease. But I think it also did me a world of good. And what happened was they ended up getting rid of the long-term care portion of it and the short-term care part of it. Today it's known as Community Bridges because they built the facility up on Bambier. But I was involved in all that when all that happened back then. And, and was, you know, I remember going to meetings for the city and stuff like this to try to keep our funding, funding going. It just wasn't going to happen. So I got to see all that and be involved in it. But see, none of this stuff I'm talking about would be possible if I was out there drinking. I wouldn't see this stuff. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the opportunity to understand what really happens and look at it from different eyes and different feelings and different emotions like I have today. And see what really it's all about. Instead of saying, oh my God, I don't want anything to do with that. You know what I mean? And it's like, wow, being involved in it is pretty cool today. Seeing that I was. Well, anyway, along the way, I met this gal. Um, she's a pretty nice gal. She lived in the same apartment complex I did. She moved up here from Tucson and moved downstairs from me. And I was living upstairs. And I seen her. And I go, well, I got to get to know her. But it was in a different manner, in a different fashion. She says, I don't want to screw this up. I really like what I seen. So I just kind of, see, I had this thing on my back pat porch that I could see through. It had slits in it, you know, it kept the sun out. So I could look to them, and I could I could see down at the pool. And I could see people, you know, I could see her down there. And I looked down there, and I go, oh, yeah, she is. How can I talk to her? I didn't, I did not know how to go approach this. I, I really didn't. So I went and talked to my friend, this buddy of mine in the program, and he shared some ideas of how to approach her. And I talked to another person, and their both ideas were about the same. So I, I, I went about it that manner. You know, I like a little kid, like I was back in, I felt like I was back in high school or junior high, leaving little notes and little things, you know, and stuff like this, trying to make her curious who this was and all that. And, uh, and then, I, then I remember seeing her come outside her house, we both kind of met, and I talked to her that first time I talked to her said hi and all this stuff. We, she went that way, I went that way. And uh, kind of communicating that way. And there's, I said, that was kind of neat. There's a little chemistry going on there. And then I was over at the old Mid-City group that man over there off of, uh, what was that, 7th Street, and High, or 16th Street in Highland. And I was over there for an evening meeting, 5 o'clock meeting. And I was sitting there. And uh, I heard something behind me, and I turned around, and there she sat. And I looked at her, and then she looked at me. And uh, we both just started laughing, because we did, okay. So that just really broke the ice, and then we started to get to know each other. And then about six months later, we were together, and we've been together now for 29 years. And she's just, she's sitting right down here. And that woman scared the living bejesus out of me when I first met her because I just did not know 
what to do. Okay? And to this process of getting to know her over all these years, we have a son who's 29 years old, married. So I have a daughter-in-law who fits in our family well. She's just about as wacko as the rest of us. And uh, through the, them two getting together and the chemistry they have produced, that's a granddaughter. So we got a granddaughter who come December will be three years old. So she's just a little over two. Okay. And uh, she's got me wrapped around her little finger. And she knows it. And uh, anyway, it's, it's all good stuff. And then we got a baby. She's got another baby coming along that we think is going to be a boy. At least that's what we're told. So I got my work cut out for me when he gets here. Some of the things I got to teach him how to do is pee in the woods and fish. And I got to get her in there, too. I got to get her in there to fishing, too. But she doesn't have to pee in the woods. It's a guy thing. But it's all good stuff. But, you know, I, you know, along the way, there's been an awful lot of things that happen that I forget about when I'm talking and I have to get to talk and I remember. And there's something that uh, I, I remember that I should share this. Because, see, not only, do, not only am I an alcoholic, but I do have problems other than just alcohol. And it's not drug addiction. Uh, uh, for me, it's a mental illness. The mental illness I have is uh, used to be called uh, uh, manic depressive, but today they rather say bipolar, and uh, that's uh, something I have to get treated. And uh, without treatment, I'll end up back in the hospital if I don't maintain that. But now the reason why I maintain that today is only one reason: is what I've learned in this program. If I don't take care of my disease with alcoholism, I'm not going to be able to take care of that. The program's taught me what to do to take care of my alcoholism. That's why I come here. I go somewhere else to take care of my other problem, and it's been working rather well. Today, I have not had to wake up in St. Luke's. I have not had to wake up behind the county hospital. For that, I'll be internally grateful. And a lot of that I give credit to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the things they taught me here today. I have to give the credit to them because I didn't know how to do any of this stuff. I didn't even know I had that going on until I was sober for a while. I was sober for almost 10 years before I found out what the hell was going on then. You know? And I had to do what I have to do. Now I get this cortisone shot, not knowing anything about cortisone. Uh, God, I wish I did. Uh, I get this cortisone shot about two weeks ago. I think it's been going on about two weeks now. And my uh, left shoulder. Boy, I tell you, I'm glad I got that done because it did relieve all this pain in my shoulder. But the side effects, I didn't understand the side effects of that. Some people, they have extreme side effects with it. Some don't. Guess what, folks? I had the extreme. <laughs> extreme enough for me. I became really agitated. I became all kinds of stuff. But I talked to my doctor about this stuff already, and I just, oh, I just had no idea. I did, at least I sounded off in the AA meeting. I didn't sound off out here on the streets or in the store or anything like that. But I told uh, two groups out here exactly what I thought about how they're running the running their AA meetings. <laughs> I said, "They're not been sober for a long time, you know." I mean, 
You know, I didn't know I was going to do all this. I, had, I was surprised I did it. I was surprised he even let me back in in the meeting after it sounded off like that. But it was, it was crazy. Truly, truly crazy. But the thing is, through doing that stuff, and after sounding off and being a complete jerk, being a complete ass, I got to see other areas of my life today. When I look back, it's got me looking back over everything in my sobriety again. Well, I've been a real jerk. I've been a jerk for a real long time. I just didn't realize it. But there are people telling me things because of my vocal. <laughs> All of a sudden, for this shot, it just brought it to my attention. Like one person came up to me, you realize how much your voice carries? I had no idea it carried that much. But then I started thinking. You know, I just got to watch what I do in a meeting anymore because my, my voice does. It carries. carries very. I think I'm talking real soft or whispering and stuff. No, they can hear me across the room. I had no idea that was going on, but then I found out I did. It had been going on for a long time. So now i got to watch what I do. Really, I do. I just need to be more careful with that. Now, I also know this. If I have my hearing aids on, I don't get as vocal. I don't get as loud. So now those are getting in being repaired right now so I can wear them. They're getting a bigger amplifier in. So in other words, I'm taking necessary steps right now to help me deal with all these things, you know, medically and whatnot and everything else and just the awareness of it, and I've been praying about it and everything else just so I could be a better person today. You're going to be doing this crap all your life. You're going to be, when you get into this program, you're going to be doing what I'm talking about the rest of your life. This is, this is a way of life. You know, and just be grateful that you have a way of life today. <laughs> you know, you, know but you don't have to drink. You don't have to do all that other stuff. All you have to do is suit up and show up here. You know, I thought, I didn't think they were going to let me back into this one meeting because of what I said. But they did. This is just how crazy I was getting with all this stuff. So you can still have those moments. You get old. See, it used to be prayer and meditation. Now that I'm up here and I'm retired and I'm in my, I'm in my later 60s, today it's, it's not so much prayer and meditation as it is prayer and medication. <laughs> it seems to be about the way it is today, you know. <laughs> and, and it all works hand in hand. I don't know, all this stuff seems to work out the tail end of all of this stuff anyway, you know. Uh, but I am a blessed man. I, I really look at, you know, I mean, I don't have a whole lot of material blessings well yes I do have a whole hell of a lot of material blessings I take that back but I may not be rich in the line of uh, monetary I guess is what I'm trying to say I don't have much that way I find out I don't really need that much to be happy I don't need that much to feel rich and it's just all how I look at it it's all how I accept it you know I'm going to read this. This here is a neat thing. I, I read this here last week. And uh, I don't know how many times I've read this book over and over again. This just hit me big time because it explains my sobriety and what, what I found in my own sobriety real well. I'm going to read this one paragraph. Okay, This is really great. I am uh, rated as a modestly successful man. My stock of material goods isn't great. That I have a fortune in friendship, courage, and self-assurance, and honest appraisal of my own abilities. Above all, I have gained the greatest thing accord to any man, 
the love and understanding of a gracious God, who has lifted me from the alcoholic scrap heap to a position of trust, where I've been able to reap the richest rewards that come from showing a little love for others and for serving them as I can. And that does say it all for me right there in that one paragraph today. You know, because I had everything twisted in my head of what I thought I had to be. And I found out that I didn't have to be. You know? And today I'm forever grateful for that. And uh, I don't know. I could almost start crying right now when I think about that alone. Because it's true. Very, very, very true. And I'd rather try and improve on my controlling my mouth. <laughs> and what comes out of this, not bringing harm onto another human being, and show them just that much respect and that much more love. Just maybe, maybe make their day. And that I'll just pass. Thank you. Thank you.